Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Here in Psalm 51, hold your place here and turn over to 1 John for a moment. 1 John. I want to read a very familiar verse, uh, be familiar to our ears. Some time ago we had the opportunity, we preached through 1 John and as a church family, we memorized a good portion of it, and there's a passage there I think very applicably ties into this morning's message. We're in the 51st Psalm as we've been beginning our study in this second book, which uh, in, in uh, the Psalms begins in the 42nd Psalm. Uh, the first 10 or 11 of them are um, indexed at the beginning of each heading as belonging to those of the sons of Korah. And then when you come down to, I believe it's uh, the 49th Psalm, perhaps, 40, uh, 50th Psalm, you've got the Psalm of Asa, the Psalm of Asa. There's a number of Psalms accredited to him, though there's, I, uh, I think the balance of them are later in the book. This is the only one in this present area. And then the majority of them in this second book are attributed to David, and such is this one, the 51st Psalm. And this is the first of the series in this book that belongs to David. Now, last week, we looked at the 51st Psalms. We made it about halfway through. We, we focused on three specific areas last week in those first nine or ten verses. We focused on the cry of confession given in verse number one and two. And then we moved to the second portion, uh, starting in verse number three, the confession itself, what he's saying. And we drew particular interest in his possessive articulation of the sin. And in fact, he mentions three different sins there. He talks about the transgression, the iniquity, and then the general use of sin. But I would have you note in verse 2 and 3 again, uh, when I speak of the confession, he, he owns it, if you will. He takes responsibility for it. My sin, cleanse me, my transgression, my sin is against thee. I have sinned, verse number 4, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil. And he continues in that vein, and that was all part of his confession. And I, I would have you note that biblical confession always requires personal responsibility for the transgression. Uh, you might remember, well, maybe you were a, a perfect child, but you, you ever witnessed someone else, you know, and uh, there was an infraction, particularly among siblings, and your parent or the authority figure says, now I want you to tell this other little boy or girl that you were sorry. Now, what's your attitude? Sorry. No, now you tell him like you really mean it. I saw a fellow once, and he was under the same thing. And when the when the teacher said, "Now tell it like you really mean it," he got all Macbethian, you know, all all spiffied up and said, "I have sinned against you now." But in a genuine sense, when we're talking about confessing to God, it's something that we have to take responsibility for. It's an interesting question, though. What is confession? Confession, I think a good word picture is in the New Testament. We'll look at this in just a second, these very passages. But a confession, it's a, it's a compound Greek word. It, it simply means this, saying the same thing. True biblical confession is saying about your activity, be it a transgression or iniquity or sin, what God said about it. And so it stands in stark contrast to what we see in society today or perhaps where our heart might be this morning. I have, we all have, a unique ability to spin the truth, to make it not seem as bad 
as God says it is. Interestingly, that's one of the grand reasons why Christians don't mature as they ought to mature in life because they won't call the problem, the difficulty, the transgression in their life what God calls it. Until we make our blackest sin as black as God made it and our white lie as black as God makes it, then we'll truly have no reason to repent. And so we see this here in David's confession in verses 3 through 6. And the last portion we dealt with last week was really the cleansing. And he speaks of these three specific things in this cleansing. In verse 7 he says, purge me, uh, wash me. And then later he speaks of blotting these out, hide my face, blot all of these transgressions. Uh, blot out all my iniquities. And those were three, if you will, cleansing aspects to this sin. But yet that's only half the psalm. And so this morning I want to begin in verse 10 and move down through the balance of this with uh, the last two portions, the calling and the commitment. And I would remind you lastly, just as a portion of review, uh, that as you read down through this psalm, particularly if you study through it, you'll find out that poetically there's a number of things that are given in series of threes. And that's a great consideration to remember. For instance, last week we looked at four, and I'm going to point out three more today. So there's at least seven groupings of threes that you'll see. Uh, now, you know what that means? That means there's three sins each day that you commit. That's just faulty numerology. I just made that up. It means there's 21 things mentioned, but they do seem to come in three groupings, and that partially is due to the poetic nature of this song. Let me point these out. The first three that we had dealt with the characteristics of God found in verse number two. His loving kindness, uh, his tender mercy, his compassion, if you will. And then we moved on and there's three separate in this particular passage. There's three separate uh, labelings, if you will, or references to wickedness. I mentioned them a moment ago. Transgression, iniquity, and of course, sin in a general sense. Then, uh, I'll note, he makes three statements about his sin. Uh, in verse number three, he says, I acknowledge my sin. In verse uh, number four, he said, I have sinned against thee. And in verse number five, you'll find something of a personal confession that he was shapen in sin. Uh, he was shapen in iniquity, if you will. And then, you'll note, from last week, he makes three petitions, and I pointed those out just for a moment. Purge me, wash me, and blot them out. We'll look at a few more this morning just by way of our study. When speaking of confession this morning, we're directly looking at this. Um, our, our title, our thought is this. What are the fruit, or if you will, the works of confession? What are the fruits of confession? What results in the life of any believer as they faithfully confess their sins? Before we go any further, look over, if you will, to the passage there in 1 John. Look at 1 John, chapter number 2. And you could really hearken back to chapter 1. But note, if you will, verse, verse 1 of chapter 2. My little children, these things write unto you that you what? Sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is our propitiation for our sins, the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
would note in this particular passage, even hearkening back, as I said, to the last few verses of the previous chapter, sin always has consequences. Sin always has consequences. Particularly in the 51st Psalm, this grand consequence is highlighted in many different ways. There was a practical consequence, or if you prefer, a punitive consequence for David's sin all the way back in 1 Samuel. And that was ultimately what? That was a direct grief and loss of that child. But that is not the only consequence that was faced. In fact, I would remind you that as a result of David's veering from the presence of the Lord, which I would say really started in the earlier part of the chapter when he was simply not where he was supposed to be. And the scripture opens up the particular passage with Bathsheba and Uriah and all this with this passage, for it was in the time when kings go to war. But what you find is David did not fulfill his responsibility, his obligation to do those things that he knew to do. Joab was not supposed to lead the troops into battle. Abishai was not that man that was supposed to do that. Though at times they led certain groups, the one responsible was the king. That was David's calling. David was this man after God's own heart and David was going to lead to the expansion and finally the gathering of all of this land that God had promised him. But rather than to fulfill that, he abdicated those responsibilities for someone else. And that doesn't seem like a big deal. But had David been where he was supposed to be, then the temptation for Bathsheba would have never been present. You have the consequence of a child born in sin and subsequently that death, that punishment that God brings. But beyond that, you see that sin now enters his house in a whole new level and his entire home for the balance of his kingdom is racked with scandal after scandal after scandal. Because after all, if daddy can do what he wants to, if daddy is accountable to no one, if daddy does not have to fulfill the obligation that everyone, even the most uneducated servant in the house of the king, knew that David was supposed to do, then why should anybody else do what they're supposed to do? And it moves even beyond that because he was the king. All the eyes of Israel are upon him. But then to a spiritual nature, there's a broken fellowship with his Redeemer. There's a reason why historically we call him the sweet psalmist of Israel. The song is gone. The sweetness, the, the level of innocence has fled away. As revealed in verse number 10 and following, I would note that he has lost in a one grand sense in verse number 12, the joy of his salvation. Sin always has consequences. And for individuals, there are many motives that one can have in reference to confession of sin and seeking forgiveness. And I'm speaking not just before God, but in a practical, personal sense as well. Sometimes folks simply ask uh, forgiveness because it's expedient. It's expedient. I remember some years ago, <coughs> although this is not unique to this exact example, there's many of these, but uh, there was a public figurehead. He was, he was a professional athlete, and he had, uh, he had cheated on his wife, and he got caught. And he began to lose sponsors. I mean, most of these professional athletes make considerably more with sponsorships 
than they actually make with the contribution or contracts that their teams give. And he began to lose these uh, sponsorships, and so he had a public test conference, you know, and I'm sorry for all the people I hurt. I apologize. It was ill-thought, ill-conceived. I've often wondered, would the apology ever came forward if there wasn't an inconvenience there? Sometimes folks look for forgiveness. It's just a matter of inconvenience. They want to write something. Sometimes it's a matter of embarrassment. Sometimes folks make confession. You see this in the political justice system today because there's a pursuit of a lesser penalty. If I can plea bargain for it. If I'll cop to theft, will you drop the felony charge of armed robbery? A lesser plea. Sometimes folks seek forgiveness in one sense for any one of these reasons. Yet for believers, particularly I speak of penitent sinners, it's not enough that they simply ask for forgiveness. There must always be the change of heart. A New Testament idea, the concept there throughout scriptures is repentance. Lest, genuine repentance, uh, 1 Corinthians talks about it being godly sorrow that worketh repentance, lest the sin is repeated. The driving motive for David is that he doesn't want to be in this particular condition that he is between him and God ever again. He doesn't want to repeat this lesson. He could have been in a constant place of communion with God, yet becoming a reliable and faithful and steadfast saint does not come with a simple quick prayer. There's often more to the story. Note these three requests, or if you will, the three callings that he makes in verse number 10. Three things, and I'll give you these and we'll back up. He says, create in me a clean heart. That's his first calling. The second one is this, cast me not away from thy presence. And you might gather the twelfth one or the third one from the twelfth verse, which is, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Create to me a clean heart. That word create here is a very interesting word. The Hebrew word is the exact word used in the opening verses of Genesis chapter 1. Do you remember what it is? In the beginning, God created. I find this very interesting. He could have used a number of words here. He could have said in reference to the cleansing he needs, Father, Lord, help me do better. But that's not the prayer. He could have said, look, uh, 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 make me more perfect in this particular area. Yet the emphasis is on creating. And when you chase that back to the beginning in Genesis, what do you know about the creations of the heaven and the earth? They were made out of something that did not exist. Listen, God does not want His children to be a better version of themselves. You know what God wants from you and I? He wants the creation of a whole new image. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians chapter 4, doesn't he? Put off the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Do you remember? The very next mind, he says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. But speaking of that new man, he said that new man which is created in the image of Jesus Christ. God doesn't want you to be a better version of you. Now it's hard because when we look in the mirror we think so highly of ourselves. God wants you in this life just like He wanted David to resemble the Son Jesus Christ. 
He wants you to exude holiness in your life. He wants you to follow after Him. And David says, Father, create in me a clean heart. Make it out of something that's not there. In reference to the heart, and I'm getting a little ahead of my notes, but in reference to the heart, the Bible does not have a whole lot good to say about our heart. In fact, there's a number of things the Scriptures would say about our heart, and he's not talking about our our cardiac muscle that resides within our ribcage. He's speaking rather of that inner man, if if I can call it this, the seat of emotions, the seat of the will, the mindset, the outlook of life. And of speaking of this heart, Jeremiah refers to it that it's deceitful and desperately wicked and bringing to it the process of who can know this heart. Isaiah 55, as we're memorizing and speaking of this, it speaks about our thoughts not being his thoughts and our ways not being his way. The conclusion that we can make is that our physical heart, in a sense of our inward mindset, emotions, uh, the seat of our thought is not formatted to process the information like God wants to process. In 1 Corinthians we find that our mind must be focused on Him and created spiritual around the mind of Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, we find that our mindset must be created upon the reflection of the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4 that I referenced just a moment ago, in relationship to our mind and that constant sin of renewal, it's under a constant sort of battle. And yes, I'd like to blame all of the spiritual warfare of a saint upon Satan or upon the world system. But those are not the greatest enemies I face. For the greatest enemy I face is the same great enemy that David faced and it's the same great enemy that every child of God faces and that is in fact the fact that I reside within this tabernacle of flesh. Hearkening back, that's why David said, Create in me out of something that is not through thy holy and divine spirit, make something that is good. He's tapping to the very thought and teaching of Romans chapter 7 when he says, in my flesh there dwelleth... Let me ask you a question. How much godliness is in your flesh? 7th chapter of Romans, dealing in a very small essence of the sensitivity of a believer to sin, that which I do, I would not. And that which I would not, who shall deliver me from this body of flesh? The answer is given in the next chapter, in Romans chapter 8. It's the Spirit of God and the believers resides to us. The great aid, the one that comforts us, the one that calls us alongside is the Spirit of God. And yet with all of that we have the potent opportunity to grieve the very Spirit of God whereby we are sealed unto the day of redemption. How? Well, that's also Ephesians chapter 4. Do you remember that? Turn there just for a moment with me. It's been a while since I've recited these or quoted these. The enabler that allows us to be in the very image of God, we have the capacity to grieve. I don't know that the lost man has that capacity. He can resist him. He can blaspheme him. I don't know that same thing as the grief. The the context of this word grieve in Ephesians chapter 4 deals with what the saint can do. In Ephesians chapter 4, note these because it's a good question. How does that happen? Ephesians chapter 4, if you will. And grieve not, verse 30, the Holy Spirit of God whereby you are sealed to the day of redemption. And he's going to list a whole list of things here. Let all bitterness, the root word there is that which is acrid. Let all bitterness... 
Wrath, wrath is deep-seated anger. Anger, violent passion, if you will. And clamor and evil speaking be put away with you with all malice. You know, all of those are responses of the flesh. So when I'm faced with a difficulty in life and I consistently retort to responding naturally, that displeases God. Let me be brief and let me point, be, be, be pointed. God doesn't want you to be a better person. I can't help the difficulties that's occurred to your life no more than you can help the difficulties that occur to my life. But God can. And many of those, when a child of God holds on to that bitterness, it will prevent the work of the Holy Spirit of God in their life. And they'll make a choice. They'd rather not do God's will of joy and peace and retaining bitterness, and it will ruin the joy of their salvation. There's a number of them here. Anger, evil speaking. Um, even down to verse number 32, the failing or failure to forgive. There's any manner of way in which a child of God can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. But going back to our text here, David forthwith knew the importance of having a divine work done in his life. Notice, if you will, I spoke just a moment ago of this heart. Look at the depth of this, clean, this, uh, this, this cleansing. Uh, in fact, I want to jump just ahead here. Note this last phrase in verse number 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a what kind of spirit? Right. Look at verse 11. Comes in threes. Verse number 11. Take not thy holy spirit from me. Look down to verse number 12. Uphold me with thy what? Free spirit. Look at the depths. The spirit. And oftentimes that heart and mind and spirit are woven together. The proverb speaks of a spirit and says a wounded spirit. Who can bear? Daniel in the 6th chapter and 3rd verse twice it is said that he was of an excellent spirit. This is our attitude. This is our emotion. Hearkening back to grieving the Holy Spirit of God, there's many a Christians that just have a poor, bitter, acrid attitude about life. And the reason they have it is because they are not in constant communion with the God of all peace and joy. So what always amazes me about Philippians chapter 1, Paul is in prison. He is being lied about. He is being maligned. There are people adding fuel to the prosecutorial flames so that he is more jeopardized, and yet there's a constant abode of peace. How is that possible? Now you'll hear someone say, well, he just was a very emotionally strong individual. I don't think so. Someone would say, well, it just wasn't as bad as what I'm going through. Listen, I'm not going to do a show of hands, but how many of you have been falsely imprisoned? No. The fact is, he had the exuding joy of God in his life. It doesn't uh, uh, remove the possibility of all these difficulties, but it does allow for the benefit of seeing the sovereign hand of God in one's life. 
the presence of realizing that God is using difficulties to bring about your personal sanctification. And regards of the personal sanctification, all that God allows to come into your life is for your benefit. He needs a cleansing of his attitude. You know, there's many Christians today that just have bad attitudes. They're angry about everything. Malicious, wrathful, snarky, evil speaking. You know what that is? That's a whole gamut of speech. Anything from sedition to heresy to maligning. It's all in that big, giant, beautiful ball of wax. Three times he mentions this word spirit. This is his emotions. This is his attitude. Note here, what is a right spirit? By right, we mean one that is steadfast and reliable. If you could put it in this sense, David is talking about his own attitude. He's talking about his own spirit. He's not talking about the spirit of God in a, in a theological uh, pneumatology. He's talking about his own self. He said, he said Lord, keep that right spirit within me. Right is just a shortened form of righteousness. When was the last time we had to confess our sins so that we could have a righteous attitude? Notice in verse number 11. This is an interesting phrase here. Particularly I'm dealing with these spirits right now because we are finishing up verse 10. So I'll come back and visit these in just a minute. But notice in verse number 11 he said, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Now I'll let you in on something. I did some study this week about this. To the best of my knowledge, for 300 plus years, believers understood this passage, particularly the last part of verse number 3, is talking about David's spirit. But in the last 50, 60 years, with the exception of the authorized version, nearest I could tell, every other Bible version has it capitalized. And King James does not. Here's a problem with that. If that's talking about a person, it should be capitalized, right? But if David is actually saying, take not the Holy Spirit from me, is he saying he can lose his salvation? You see the problem there? That's incongruent with the other portions of scriptures. But I can make this quite... To understanding, I think, if we consider for a moment, who preceded, let me ask you a question. Let me back that up. Outside of shepherding flocks, what was the first ministry that David had? One of the very first ministries he had. Bling, 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 bling. Come on. He played, why did he play music for Saul? There's an interesting phrase in 1 Samuel, the 19th chapter. An evil spirit had come upon Saul. And it's manifested. He's full of abysmal hatred. How much so? On multiple occasions, he tries to commit public homicide, throwing spears at people. 
He's hunting David. And the only thing that relieved this malignant attitude that he had was the songs of God. David was a ruddy little kid. When he saw the giant of Israel, Saul, in such a bitter, acrid, disturbed attitude. When David's writing a psalm, he said, Take not thy, what's the opposite of evil? Holy Spirit from me. I don't want that in life. I want an attitude that not only is right in a sense of pursues righteousness, but I want an attitude that is contrasted from what society has. He doesn't talk about losing his salvation. He's talking about the depth of cleaning which he's calling upon God to take in his life. And then there's a third mention of spirit in verse number 12. He says, uphold me with thy free spirit. The idea of free is the idea of willing or free will. It is the attitude of sustaining ability. And it is directly akin to the free will offerings of the book of Leviticus. And I want to go to the temple of God. I want to move beyond the brazen altar. I want to make sacrifices and have them wholly acceptable unto God, which is my reasonable duty. And yet, because of my blasphemous sin that I've committed unto God, God will not even receive my offerings. And there's no burnt offering that can atone unto it. We looked at that last week. There's no offering that could be made that would atone for adultery and murder. They're blatant, rebellious violations against the Decalogue. There's no offering that could be made. There's no song on his lips anymore. His attitude is abysmal. Lord, I need a cleaning that goes deep within my very heart and being and mind. A great depth of cleaning that he needs. Notice this second calling. Not only that of a clean heart, but go back to verse number 11. He says, cast me not away. Some would argue, as I said a moment ago, that this is some idea that he's losing his salvation. Let me remind you that the means of salvation has never changed. In Romans chapter 4, that's highlighted by the life of one man. The father of Israel. His name, Abraham. And the scripture in the fourth chapter of Romans says this, that he was justified by... That's God's exclusive means to eternal life. That was the way Adam and Eve got saved. That's the way David, if I can use that analogy, is going to get saved. That's the way Abraham is going to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's the same way you and I and the writer of Hebrews in the 11th chapter, how many times does he say, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. That's the way Abel comes to the saving knowledge. It's always by faith. It's an interesting question. Because in Hebrews chapter 11, there's some shall we call them colorful figures that we do not remember as contrastingly always righteous. And yet they're the example that is upheld. I do not think that about the life of Samson, yet he's in the text. I could question some about the life of Jephthah, but yet he's in the text. I could question that about the life of Barak all the way back in Judges chapter 4 and 5, but yet he's in the text. The means of salvation has never changed. It is still and always has been a marvelous gift of God. He saves. He calls upon the unrighteous to repentance. Let me give you a few more verses about this. I think of the book of Romans, the ninth and 10th chapter. Particularly in the ninth chapter, the 33rd verse, you'll find this. 
Whosoever believeth in Him shall not be confounded. In the 10th chapter and the 11th verse that we memorized not long ago, it is this, Whosoever believeth in Him shall not be ashamed. Now I left out a convenient portion of both of those verses in the 10th and 9th chapter. Those two verses, chapter 9 verse 33, chapter 10 and verse 11, are all prefaced by a phrase. You remember what the phrase says? As it is. Paul is moved upon by the Holy Spirit of God to pen something God had already wrote. So the question is, where did God write those words? Hint, hint. It's in the Old Testament. It's Isaiah chapter 28. God has never been in the business of having a limited ability to save sinful man. Those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ shall be saved. In fact, speaking of Isaiah, I think of the first chapter. Though your sins be as crimson, they shall be white as snow. There's a transformation, a continual transformation. He's not talking, cast me not away from thy presence, on losing the salvation. This casting is a reference to his service. It's in reference to the ability that if he continues down this path and he doesn't have the cleansing and he doesn't have the forgiveness, he'll have no ability to serve God. By the way, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, same thought Paul had in the New Testament. He said, less that after any means... I myself should be a, what's God going to do? In context of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he's talking about keeping his whole body, his mind and all. He said, I've got to do this. I've got to, as I preach, live the gospel I preach, be obedient. Why? He said, because I'll be a castaway. If you will, God's going to set me aside. He's not going to use me. David's afraid of the same thing. Cast me not away. Not that he would lose his salvation, but he's going to lose his opportunity to be served. Is there any historical preference for this in scriptures? And yes, it is King Saul. There's a man that ran up against the commands of God. There's a man that transgressed the law of God. And he did that which was directly, uh, refused, or directly uh, mentioned in the scriptures. He blatantly refused to do so. And along with that bitter and acrid spirit... What ultimately happened to King Saul? God set him aside. Can I ask you a question? Did he stop being king that day? No, agonizingly he would go forward for the better part of the next decade or so. But was it a fruitful tenure? Far from it. David's inward desire is to be used of God, but God does not use unholy things in matters of worship. Cain's offering will always, even today, be rejected. God will not lower his standard of holiness. That's why Peter calls on the saints of God to be ye holy, even as I am holy. There's a third calling. Notice verse number 12. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. I love that word restore. 
David was well acquainted with it, personally and experientially. As a young shepherd boy, he'd take those sheep in the wilderness area and he'd have to go find that spring and he'd watch the sheep, some of them heavy weighting down by wool. They'd become weak and they're a little on the simple side. But my soul, when they got to the cool water and they began to drink of it, what happened to those sheep? It's almost like their entire personality changed. He saw that. He experienced that. David would be chased by Saul. And there would be times that he would hold up in places and it would be that area of safety that would provide an encouragement to his soul. Like the time he ran from Saul and was pursued by Dog. Do you remember this? And he goes into the tabernacle in Shiloh and there he is restored physically and he eats of the showbread, and the high priest Abathar gives him the sword of, of, uh, of Goliath, his physical man was restored. It's within that same keeping that he says, Lord, restore me. Restore me. Not regain his salvation. He did not lose that. It's not his sonship, it's his fellowship, it's his joy. I'm reminded of the 23rd Psalm, He restoreth my soul. Some folks believe today that joy is like happiness. That somehow what I do will ultimately make me happy. And if I'm not happy, then I just haven't done the right things. You know, this was conceptually the thought that David had. I have no doubt in the preceding years to the time that he committed the sin with Bathsheba that he was under great duress in life. There were weighty times. The weight of the nation of Israel seemed to be upon his shoulders. There's all manner of crisis of trying to keep the tribes together. Saul had not managed to do it very well. David's going to struggle with it. There's always some other tribesmen that's talking about how David's showing favoritism to this tribe and this one's showing favor to this tribe and, and everybody's a better king than David. So they murmur and they complain. And David's got the weight of this to deal with. He's got the weight of policy and procedure to deal with. Well, how can I be happy, David said to himself. Well, if I just embrace the easy life. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to do what I don't... I'm just going to do what I want to do. I'm going to put my feet up, and I'm going to let Joab take a run at it. When he embraced the easy life, that was the first step. When he embraced the life of a lack of discipline... Spiritual focus, responsibility, fidelity to the calling of God. He thought he'd have happiness, but he didn't. And from his house, he looked out upon the housetop of Bathsheba. There, when the easy did not bring joy, he embraced the forbidden. And then finally, recognizing his sin... He still wasn't happy, so he decided to erase the problem. If I can cover all this up, I'll finally be happy. My friend, the fact is, sin never brings happiness. You know what sin brings? Sorrow. Righteousness brings rejoicing. 
Sin removes every good thing from our life. Sin will remove your joy. Sin will disturb your health. Sin will destroy your wealth. Sin ultimately has the capacity to destroy one's life. But righteousness when pursued is the only restoration we can know. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. These are his three callings he makes. Three things that seem so simple and easy at once for our eyes just to glance over. But yet with his sin and the subsequent confession, he sees the depths to which his life has been destroyed. He sees the peace of God that has been ripped from his heart. The joy is no longer on his lips. The communion is not present. And he is standing at the very presence where God's judgment is set against him in a very visceral way. He has a choice to make. As believers in this age, we're no different. Sometimes some of the very things in life should be a token acknowledgement that we have wandered from the presence of our God. One of the fruit of confession in the life of a believer, one of the things that is showcased is the joy of God. How's your joy this morning? I realize life might not be going your way, but joy is a spiritual gift that God gives His children. How's your attitude? Could our attitude be described as one of righteousness? Could it be described as one of holy? Could it be described as one that is willing, yielded? Long ago I gave up trying to live by my attitude. Rather, the way to live in this Christian life is to live in righteousness. And knowing the promise of Philippians chapter 4, ever true, it compasses the ability to keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus, our Lord. The calling. Part of the truth. Let's stand for you, Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.